Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Driving to the Basket. I'm Mike. I am here with Dante and Tommy. Uh, we are recording this episode uh, on the 20th of March, actually the day after the, in some ways, unfortunate victory against the Rockets. Uh, it is five days away away from the trade deadline, uh, which is Thursday, uh, March 25th. So, uh, you know, we're all hoping to see some movement from the Pistons on that day. There have been the, the Pistons really tied to, to trade deadline rumors, but in particular Wayne Ellington to a lesser but still significant degree, uh, DeLon Wrights, and then to a less degree than that, Mason Plumley. So I'm sure uh, in the next episode, we usually record over the weekends, we'll have a lot to talk about with respect to that. Uh, today, we are going to actually answer some questions we were uh, given by members of the uh, the. Detroit Pistons subreddit Discord. Uh, any of you who want a good place to discuss the Pistons should check it out. Uh, the link is link can be found in the subreddit. And uh, thank you to everybody who submitted questions for this episode. So, is there anything uh, either of you, Tommy Dante, want to uh, want to add before we get rolling? Um, no, I'm, I'm I'm excited to answer these questions. I don't. Yeah, we'll I haven't go right into it. any of them, so I'm ready to go. Okay, okay. So question number one, with focus on the core four, do you ideally see any pieces around them on the team currently that could fit nicely going into the future without hindering their minutes and developments? What do you say, Tommy? Uh, the only guy that I kind of really want to keep, I guess this kind of ties in with the deadline a little bit, it's probably Plumley. And I know, Dante, you're shaking your head at me, but I really do <laughs> think that he plays as well, really, his role really well. Uh, he doesn't take the ball out of the young guy's hands. He keeps them moving, and he provides enough spacing that there are still like some decent driving lanes, but he also isn't good enough that he's making the team significantly better. Uh, I think we can keep him and still continue to lose, and I think he can probably stick around for maybe the next two or three years of his contract, and I think he's a, a good piece to keep. So uh, that's the only guy that I really see right now who's – well, like, we're talking outside the old outside guys. just yeah, we're just talking the outside core four. So I mean this is just outside of uh Bailey, uh Killian Hayes and uh and Isaiah Stewart. So Yeah. I, I mean I know say, Ghost you probably goes without saying that that you're talking Grant as well, but yeah, else be oh, yeah. on those guys. Yeah. Uh other than that, probably not a ton. Uh I really like I guess the big question maybe would be Josh Jackson. I don't know how you guys feel about him. I'm not that high on him. I feel like even though this week he played a lot better, uh, he was passing it a lot more. I just don't know what his role would be on a championship team, especially with the, the usage he kind of takes up off the bench. I know he's pretty dynamic, really fun to watch, but I think he kind of takes the ball out of the other players' hands a little too much for how inefficient he is. So I don't know how you guys feel about him. Um, well, I would say just to – just to address the question as a whole. Yeah, I don't think anybody should be untouchable. Obviously, we touched on this last week a little bit, but it's just like, look, the Pistons historically, and even still now, are not in a position to be um, declining value in favor of talent and skill and being able to win right now. So, yeah, uh, Tommy, you're. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily disagree with what you have to say about Plumley, but at the same time, like if the value is there and a team is willing to give you something um, you know, that we can judge to be of equal or greater worth than Plumlee is. I mean, I, I think you should take it, right? I, I don't, as these, as our young guys kind of expand their game, I think it's safe to assume that Plumlee's role would probably diminish. And then um, by default, his numbers would diminish as well. And that's kind of, I think those those inflated numbers of bit are kind of driving his value. I don't really see his value getting much higher. Um, so if this is the peak of that, I would probably unload him for something uh, that we deem to be good enough. And then um, as far as sticking around, I mean, I'd love to see Grant stick around, but like Troy Weaver said, if you, you offer a bunch of first round picks and they're good and the value's there, there's not much of a conversation to be had. You kind of have to do it. So I think that's a tough question to answer unless we know what exactly the compensation is. But I would say everyone is probably available aside from the core four. It's just going to depend on what's offered. Yeah, I think the the essence of the question, I believe, more just centered around which which pieces on the team can 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 fit into the team's future 
uh, conceivably if, as it hopefully advances toward championship contention, which, which I think it bears, I think it bears mention that the, that's a ways off in the future. This is, I think Weaver is, is in ways, in, in some ways done an impressive job. Uh, I've been pleasantly surprised, but this is year one. I mean, there's, there's a long way to go before the Pistons have, you know, hopefully not uh, in terms of time, hopefully not a long way to go, but in terms of the roster. So, you know, without hindering, so it's about without hindering the minutes and development of the core four. Here's, here's what I have to say about the core four. I mean, I, I think there are four players who can be useful. I think that, however you might feel about uh, about Sadiq Bey, I know he's he's been better than expected, and and you know, and what he can be. Uh, though I I don't think that just just owing to his really is his lackluster half court athleticism, I don't think that's going to be star level. But who knows? Maybe maybe Bay could be say the third best player in a championship team if he can really expand his offensive repertoire and 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 really improve as a defender. But uh, probably the the two core pieces to to a championship roster are not yet with the Pistons yet. Maybe Grant. Okay. Yeah. I left that aside. Maybe it's Jeremy Grant can be that number two guy. Again, that would take some further improvement from him as well. Cause you really, you want to want to champ- win a championship these days. You really, really have to have those two elite scores and um, you know, preferably more obviously, but, but yeah, you'll be look at, at every team that, that has won a championship in, in the recent past. Uh, I guess with the Raptors, you could say, okay, who was there? A lead second scorer. I mean, I guess that was Kyle Lowry, but uh, those guys, those cats weren't going to win a championship <laughs> uh, if uh, if Durant and, uh, and and Thompson had not gone out injured. I mean, I think the chances the Raptors winning that were very low. So, I think in any discussion of the core four, you have to keep that. I think it's it's worth keeping that in mind. That's that that the teams. At the very least, if this team's going to win a championship, the best player on it is not there yet, and it's possible that the second best player is not there yet either. So, uh, but if we're thinking about, and yeah, it's it's like it's like you said, Dante, you have to be willing really to to, to make the right move in any situation. Uh, I've I've seen it said, well, the Pistons have Hayes. Should they draft somebody who's not going to be as on the ball? And the answer is no. You absolutely, absolutely, absolutely in the draft uh, when you're when you are the Pistons, go for the player who who is going to offer you the, the most value toward the toward that championship. Of course, absolutely. Yeah, you consider what you have on the roster already. It's not just oh BPA, give it to me. But I mean, for example, it's like hey Cunningham, sure. I don't know if he'll be a lead ball handler. He'll be a ball handler. You don't look at him and say, "Well, you already have Hayes, and so we're going to pass on him." Like, no, not, no. not in a million years. Absolutely not. Hayes has played seven games, right? And yeah, I know, exactly. I know, all of us are not uh, we're not down on him by any means. Like, I, I, I'm I'm fairly confident that Hayes can be an effective NBA player. But to think that we're in a position to decline talent based on what's already on the roster is just foolish. Yeah, right? it's, it's yeah. not. Yeah, I agree. It's right. not absolutely not. Idea. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but yeah, you look at, for example, I mean, there's there's a there's an example currently on the roster. Dennis Smith Jr. was drafted, I believe. Uh, that's blanking on it right now. The seventh, eighth, ninth, I can't remember. And uh, something like that. Yeah, he was he was drafted. Uh, he was drafted fairly high in, in 2017, and of course the the next the next season or the next summer, uh, the Mavericks traded up to, to you know they had the opportunity to. Take Luka Doncic if they hadn't, it probably would have been Trey Young. And so I, I, th- I would guess that there wasn't even a microsecond of thought about Dennis Smith when you had access to, to Luka Doncic. As there shouldn't be, right? Yeah, as it shouldn't be. Yeah. So, no. but if we're if we're looking at guys on the roster, uh, I I'm not too concerned about impeding the development, so to speak, of of those core four pieces. I mean, you might think about saving Lee a little bit, just because there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of point guards on the roster right now, and and who knows. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'd be curious to ask Troy Weaver exactly what he sees in Saban Lee. That's 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 really so special. I, I don't think, his, I, I don't know. I think he could be a good backup point guard. Beyond that, I'm not sure. But so Sadiq Bay is really going to project as I think you're long term one of your forwards. I don't think there's really much worry about anybody currently on the roster. He's already at the head of that depth chart. Uh, Isaiah Stewart, you know, let's see what he can become. Uh, he, he he very well could be career backup, and that's fine. 
a career backup who brings a lot of intangibles. It's really tough to see his ceiling right now, but it's just really his vertical ex- vertical explosiveness and mobility. That's that's his and his inability to play above the rim. This is real shortcoming at the NBA, and it's a big one. And Killian Hayes, we'll see what we have. And and the only way you're really going to put roadblocks in front of Stewart or Hayes are if you get yourself another point guard, or if you get yourself another center and you don't get rid of Plumlee. Uh, I fully agree with Dante that the that Plumlee is has no place on a he's, he's he is absolutely not instant indispensable. Maybe he's a good character guy behind the scenes, but for a team that's actually aiming to succeed, he's a decent backup center, but not particularly special in any respect, and he can't space the floor. Yeah, no, I agree. I, yeah. I, I totally agree with you, Mike. He's um, Plumlee's really. <laughs> He's really nothing special. I mean, as a backup center, completely agree with you. I think he'd be a good option, but the role that he's been forced into, yeah, it's like the role that he's been forced into right now is just not, um, it's just not optimal relative to winning, right? It it, it really truly is. And you could see that with the team's record. So if we can get any value for him, honestly, I would take it. Tommy, I know you love him, but uh, (laughs) we'll see, we'll see how it goes. I'm I'm excited to, to see what comes in the next five days or so. Yeah. And um, beyond that, uh, you have uh, Hamadou Diallo. I, I think, I mean, Troy Weaver has come out and said he sees him as a core piece going forward. Uh, just a, a young guy with uh, with a lot of athletic upside and uh, and, and a great attitude. Uh, Josh Jackson, I agree with you, Tommy. It's hard to see, but he was a project player. If he doesn't work out next season, you cut ties. Yep. But, I, uh, you know, and if he, if he grows to – eclipse somebody in the starting lineup. I don't know. Maybe Josh Jackson becomes your your the viable starting shooting guard. So he's played a lot of his right. minutes, and if so, fantastic. I don't know if that's likely, but if the Pistons I kind of think that's it, what they're going for. They're kind of they've brought in a lot of these guys who are like long, uh, really athletic guys who their, their jump shot is their question. I, I think the idea is you get enough of these guys, maybe one of them learns to shoot, and that's really good, high value. I mean, they've got Dennis Smith, Josh Jackson, Sekou, I mean, who's – He's not looking his best right now, but he's still a fairly athletic and raw athlete. And then uh, Hamadou Diallo, if one of these guys hits, you didn't. None of these guys cost very much, so that's great that's value. True. That's a great point, Tony. Yeah, yeah I don't think I don't think Dennis Smith Jr. will be on the team next season. Um, just with with who's already around and the fact that he wasn't all that special when he came into the league. I don't know really what's been lost because he can barely penetrate now, and I think we're we're far past the excuse that he's uh, that he's not in in game shape. I mean, it doesn't take that long to get back into game shape. So, but uh, yeah, I've I've been pretty unimpressed. Maybe a third string point guard, maybe. And Seku, I would say, operates not really on the fringes of this this question, just because. And uh, I feel I should reiterate this: Seku was drafted by a team that was aiming to contend at the time. This was in twenty uh, in twenty nineteen. And he was drafted purely as an upside player, purely based on potential. He was extremely raw. He was on the opposite end of the spectrum from those players who were expected to come in and contribute immediately. He was not expected to contribute for years. And uh, I think it's it's. I think if, if the G League were in existence, right, or were an option right now, I don't think the conversation about Seko's future would really be being had. No doubt. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So uh, I hope we adequately answered that question. I know we meandered a bit. But I, I think the players who don't really have a, a future in this context are, are probably fairly obvious. The uh, uh, DeLon Wright, Wayne Ellington, you know, Magruder, and, and oh, Julio Okafor, of course, is the, you know, <laughs> it cannot be stopped. But, yeah, <laughs> just kidding. I, I still don't. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's just waived at the end of the season. I mean, it's, it's really – he's on a minimum deal. You know, the Pistons – might just spend their cap space and then get rid of him. And, mm-hmm. uh, and since well, they don't even need to spend their cap space first, if you wave Okafor, you still have to pay him next season. It's like 2.5 million or something less than that. But it really doesn't matter. All right. So second question, do you think Casey's system is playing to the strengths of the rookies or development of the rookies? If not, why uh, don't you take it away, Dante? Um, I think it depends on the rookie. Like I would say someone like Sadiq Bey, for example, um, I was very critical of Dwayne Casey early on in the season. I thought Bey should have been given a bigger role. I thought he should have received more playing time. And then when he was on the floor, um, what he was asked to do, I I thought was uh, not really playing into his strengths. But as the season has kind of progressed here, you know, I credit where credit's due. 
we've seen Sadiq uh, sort of blossom. And I think that blossoming has a lot to do with what he's been enabled uh, to do within the offense. You know, you see him getting a lot of touches. He's uh, very clearly um, got the green light as far as you can shoot it pretty much whenever you want. And then he's operating, you know, um, in, inside of the three-point line, right, too. He's, he's operating in the paint a little bit. He's doing things that we rarely saw him do early on in the season. And you can only attribute that to Casey telling him that it's okay and that uh, he has kind of free reign to experiment and expand his game a little bit. So if you're talking about Sadiq Bey, I do think Casey's system is uh, playing to his strengths. Isaiah Stewart, um, kind of the same deal. Actually, almost exactly the same deal. We see we've seen him expand his game um, more and more as as the games go on. Uh, now he's he's shooting a little bit. He's instead of pick and roll, it's pick and pop. Um, he's getting a lot more post touches, specifically when he has mismatches. We just saw this last night um, against the Rockets. I think they went to him in the post three four times in a row, and uh, he had he had very effective play there every single time. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's contextual depending on the rookie. Um, but so far, so good. I, I I am impressed with how Casey's handling it. And this is coming from someone who is not afraid to be, well, none of us are. None of us are afraid to be critical of Casey. Um, but I am willing to put a feather in his cap for this. And I'm curious to know if your guys' thoughts have evolved as the season has gone on, because mine has. Yeah, definitely. I think this is Casey's best season as the Pistons coach. The offense looks better. The development of the rookies is really encouraging. And it's that's one of the main things that's given me, like, hope for Killian um, is that the other rookies look so good. And it's interesting that you mentioned that, that these guys were brought along slowly and that seems to have worked for them. Cause I know that we were all really frustrated. It was like, yeah, we can see that these guys can do more. And maybe that has to do with the fact that uh, Sadiq was a bit older than Killian. And I think Stewart is what 19 and Killian was 18. They're about the same age, but Stewart is just mm-hmm. much more equipped for his game. He's already very, very strong and built well for this. And then there was Killian who, while these other guys were brought along very slowly, uh, Killing was thrown straight into the fire. Uh, and then Casey even said, maybe he did him a disservice there by doing that. And I kind of have to agree with that. I think Killian should have come off the bench to start because one of his issues was athleticism. I think he really struggled with that. So uh, I definitely agree with you, Dante. I think it depends on the rookie. Sadiq and Stewart, yeah, absolutely. I think they were brought along exactly the right way. They weren't overwhelmed. It didn't look like that at any point with the exception of maybe that stretch of a few weeks where Sadiq was getting really inconsistent minutes for what appeared to be no reason. Uh, Maybe there's something behind the scenes. Uh, I think Casey has done a really, really good job bringing these guys along at the right pace. And I hope that he does that with Killian when he returns. So I would say here's, here's the thing about Dwayne Casey. It's very well documented what he does off the court, how active he is in the, developments and, and just the, the day-to-day uh, of his of his young players when, when they're not in-game. Now, what's less clear – well, it's actually – this is actually not less clear. Uh, in, in general, Casey is not a very detail-oriented or very active on-court coach, so to speak, in, in terms of uh, how – uh, even in terms of stuff like running plays, which apparently he does very little, uh, but just in terms of how tightly he can, de- how tightly he coaches, basically the, the degree of direction given to his players within, uh, you know, in, in the context of operating within a system, and, and that certainly stretches to his, especially his veterans, who to just historically have been given tremendously free reign. Uh, I, I don't know how it goes when it comes to his younger players. They've generally had a shorter leash. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how uh, how closely he's coaching what they do on the court. I would say probably somewhat closely, but there is a confounding factor of the veterans not being coached anywhere near as much. So when it comes to Killian Hayes, for example, I found it really frustrating the way he was handled early in the season. Of course, he's only played early in the season. But yeah, he was put out there. And uh, I don't know what instructions he was given, but it's clearly the offense basically boiled. I know Casey was saying we didn't want him to do too much, but basically Killian would go in and his job would, when he was on the floor with the starters, be to give the ball to Blake Griffin at the three-point line and then just hope that somebody would pass it to him later in the possession. And a lot of times he would just do nothing. 
I mean, by the time he would just stand out in the perimeter and do nothing. And uh, I would, uh, I found myself yelling at, uh, at the TV a couple of times when, when watching Griffin take the ball from Hayes and then post up as a, his, his defender from halfway, you know, from, excuse me, from like a few feet inside the three point line and just back him down. And then maybe a few seconds later, Hayes' defender would come uh, onto Griffin, who would continue backing down. And it might take him eight seconds to get to the net. Hayes would have been open for a solid five seconds with no one near him. Mm-hmm. Griffin completely ignored him, despite the fact that he was facing the three-point line. And then he would just go for a bad post hook through double coverage and miss it. And in yeah. situations like that, it's like, well, is this what Dwayne Casey has directed, that that Killian really just be left tremendously on the, on the, on the perimeter? I... Probably, uh, I would hope not, and it does seem unlikely. So, is it all Blake Griffin's fault, or is or is he, you know, is he just completely stupidly ignore, absolutely ignoring this rookie who was out in the perimeter? You know, pass the ball, man. You're this double coverage. <laughs> this is a low percentage shot. You got somebody wide open. Why aren't you passing it? It's hard for me to believe that that was all Blake Griffin either, because he just didn't really do that. So, in, in that scenario, and just the way that Killian was handled, it's like Casey, what are you doing? Like what literally you're just, you're pandering. You're not even letting the guy take spot up threes. You're not running pick and rolls. I mean, Killian would call for a call for a pick and roll from Mason Plumlee who would just ignore him. Yeah. And is that Plumlee? I find that hard to believe. Is this not operating within Casey's scheme? Why isn't he doing anything about it? So I think the way he handled Killian was very poor. Basically he, he didn't get to play to any of his strengths. He was constantly on the periphery. And it seemed like there was kind of a crisis of confidence there. And it's like, as well with the, you know, where, where Hayes was concerned. So, so when it came to Hayes, I would say it was handled badly. And whatever you want to say about, should he have been the starting lineup or not? And in case he wasn't going to start Rose, so it was a little bit of a moot point. So I don't really know how he would have gotten around this without playing Killian at shooting guard. I guess you could, yeah, you started DeLon Wright at that point guard, but no, I, I don't know. Anyway. They kind of did that so, a little bit. They had DeLon handling the yeah. ball a lot with Killian in the early goings. Yeah, but Killian got to do nothing. You put DeLon right on the floor with another point guard, DeLon's going to be the point guard. That's the issue with keeping him on the roster. And he said it. Yeah, he said, I'm a point guard. I like to play on the ball. Uh, just so I don't see much merit in, 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 in keeping him on the roster, you know, as a quote-unquote steadying presence for the, not quote-unquote, but a, you know, which is that's the idea is a steadying presence for the younger point guards next season. Because if he's on the floor with another point guard, that point guard is going to be 1B at most. So that's how I feel about Hayes. I, I think that Casey handled that very poorly across the board. So uh, when it comes to uh, to Bay and, and Stewart, I'm not going to talk much about Saban Lee just because he hasn't been around very much and he's also not very NBA ready. Uh, you know, he had he had his a couple big games. But he he's he's pretty raw, and he need, really needs to become more of a perimeter threat. He's playing an Ish Smith like game right now. Uh, he's not nearly as good at it as Ish Smith, and Ish Smith is not a viable point guard anymore anyway. Uh, not uh, you know guys who can't shoot. This is just a big problem. Not not viable, but not viable on a decent team. So. Yeah, Bay, I think, has been handled pretty well. He's been given, a, aside from, as you said, Tommy games in which he was given very little in the way of minutes or very little in the way of role. And he's just he's played to his strengths, which are basically just perimeter shooting. And he's been allowed to, to try in the interior, which is nice, given the opportunity, why not? Even when he was doing awfully at it. So I'll give Casey credit there, certainly. Though I, I think Bay has benefited from the fact that he has not been on the court much with... Uh, with guys who are just going to monopolize usage. You know, and as he's been in the starting lineup, I mean, Jeremy Grant's the only really player of that sort on, on the floor uh, who's, who's likely to, to just suck usage, which is not a bad thing. I mean, he's, he's the primary option. And, yeah, and Stewart has been brought along fairly slowly. Also, Casey has said he's been encouraging Isaiah to shoot more. And, and, and Stewart just seems to kind of pass that more off on his own. So two out of three. You know, good job. And, uh, you know, with Hayes, not, not really quite so much. So, but uh, I'll give Casey kudos, and I always have. He is a good floor raiser. Uh, it's it's the question of a ceiling 
that, that's that's always in question. I'm kind of tempted to go off into what will probably be a somewhat unpopular tangent about Nick Nurse versus Dwayne Casey because this has been brought up quite a few times. Uh, maybe later. Anything to add? No, I think uh, really, I think this ties actually into the next question really well. <clears throat> yeah. So next question is, what would a successful return from injury for Killian look like? And uh, I'll, I'll wait on this one. Uh, I don't really have a ton to say. I think a successful return would see Killian be put into maximum position to succeed, which is just a, a, a situation that allows him to play to his strengths, that, that could even just be running a lot of pick and rolls, and and being able to take a bunch of open spot-up threes. Uh, and... Yeah, just put him into a situation in which he is, yeah, is, is just set up to, to succeed to the to the extent that he can. I think what you said earlier in the season, Tommy, about him just not being ready is true. I, I hoped he had been, he would be, his, his degree of readiness with, with respect certainly to his, his left-hand dominance would be better. But yeah, I'd, I'd just like to see him put into a position to succeed and for him to do a decent job. That, that would be a successful return for injury from Killian. Yeah, that, yeah. that would really be me, for me. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not concerned I, about his performance. Uh, well, I he, think... I, oh, go, go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say, I'm not super concerned about his performance. It'd be great if he came back looking better. But it's worth noting that this guy came from, from the Euro Cup, which is like two giant steps below the NBA, playing a very different game in which he was really the center of it against much lesser opposition. And he didn't have an NBA offseason. So sure. Sure. Uh, I think I'll be, I'll be, I said it earlier in, in the season, I'll be worried if he still looks awful next season. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I mostly agree with what you said, Mike. I think it's a 50-50 um, on what a successful return looks like. And 50% is going to be on Killian himself. And the other 50% is going to be on Casey and how he elects to use him. So I completely agree with you. He needs to be put in a position to succeed. Um, I personally think that that position is give him the ball um, as the primary ball handler and see how he can, um, well, for lack of a better word, handle handle the ball handling. And then let him run some pick and rolls. Let him uh, take the open threes when he has them. Don't force him to defer uh, to anybody. Like Give him the freedom to make his own decisions. And then I'll, I'll disagree with you a bit, Mike. I, I Although it's not... Everything doesn't hinge on his performance the last, you know, 20 games or whatever. I, I'd like to see him show some improvements from those first seven games because it, it, at the end of the day, um, yeah, he's very young. He's coming from an inferior league. He didn't have a normal offseason. But uh, you could say that for a lot of rookies too. And, and at the end of the day, he was a top 10 pick, and I'd like to see him perform at an acceptable level. But I have no doubt that he, that he will. Like, I, I really believe we're going to see a much different Killian Hayes these last – 20, 25 games that he plays relative to the first seven or seven or eight that he played. Um, so that's what a successful return would look like for me. What do you think, Tommy? Yeah, I agree with you, Dante. Yeah. yeah. I think something you have to keep in mind is the team looks very different now. Uh, Blake Griffin is gone. Derek Rose yeah. is gone. Those guys yep. played slow. They ate up usage. This team plays a much better brand of basketball, in my opinion. They're moving the ball really well. These guys run offense so much better than some of the other like bad teams in the league. Like watching the Wolves, they don't move well at all. They don't get up the floor quickly. Uh, when they're running plays, they they don't run hard. This team does. They play a much more free version of basketball, and the ball moves a lot better. And I think that's a much better situation for Killian than like what you said, Mike. Uh, Blake Griffin posting up for eight seconds and Killian's just standing there. I think Killian's going to have a lot more driving opportunities here. Not as many as he would with his floor spacing center. He's going to have to work around that and that'll, maybe that's just the right enough amount of, uh, I don't know, opposition or difficulty for him to really learn how to, how to drive and deal with contact and deal with two guys in the lane. But I think this is a much more, I don't know what the word, a much better opportunity for Killian to develop uh, without Blake on the floor with him. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I don't I, know if Delon would be here. Yeah. yeah. I hope not. If only because yeah. the Pistons are winning too many games right now, and I don't really see any reason for him to be on the roster next season either. Uh, right, yeah, so I agree. He makes his spot in the starting lineup, and that's a much better situation for him with these guys who are better floor spacing threats and play a much more free-flowing form of offense. Yeah, it was just ugly. It was absolutely horribly ugly at the beginning of the season. Yeah, with Griffin and Rose 
I mean, you have two guys who slowed, you know, who, even if they Griffin slows down the offense, Rose just couldn't participate in an offense. Neither could Griffin really not in a modern offense. Rose is like here. I don't care who I'm on the floor with, right? Give me a pick and I'm just going to go and attack the basket. Or maybe I'll make, you know, a non-system pass on the way to the basket. Uh, and, uh, and Griffin was Griffin and Casey when he played both of them at the same time, <laughs> you know, but even you put one of them on the floor and, and the, the, the guys around him are not going to get what they would get otherwise or be able to, to run in a real offense. So yeah, I agree. It was, it was a bad situation, but I still think Casey handled it pretty poorly. Yeah. Still, though, he, with, with those things mentioned, I think this is a much better opportunity for Killing, even if he is put back in the starting lineup. Um, I think the other thing that you want to see from him, well, there's two things I'm really looking for here. If he's going to get out in transition and he's not going to be stopped at the top of the arc and he has to create from nothing, uh, I would like to see him drive right a little bit more, get to the basket. Yeah. This yep. team runs in transition. He can take advantage of that, and especially with his passing vision, these guys are going to move up the court with him really quickly. Uh, he'll have plenty of targets on the perimeter. That's a good. That's one of his highest touted skills coming into the draft. He needs to take advantage of that. And then the other thing I want to see, uh, if he is going to be playing off the ball a little bit more, if Plumlee's creating uh, offense or handling the ball, I would like to see Killian get some catch and shoot opportunities. I think that was a much better. Uh, shot for him than the pull-up threes. I know the step mm-hmm. back was something that we really wanted to see translate, but I I don't have a ton of hope for that. I'd much rather him gain some confidence shooting with catch-and-shoot threes. I think the form was much better there. It was a lot more consistent, and I think I don't have the stats on it, but I think the percentage was a lot better too. So those are the two things I would really look for. Uh, show me something going to the right. Yeah, I do. I know you've said um... – before that you'd like to see him play shooting guard did you mean just upon his return or in general and that kind of depends on who we draft like if we have if we get Cade Cunningham or like Jalen Suggs those are guys who can be 1A ball handlers but they can also play off the ball you can have two guys who kind of split the ball handling duties fairly evenly Uh, Killian has really good passing vision but I think he needs somebody to create his drive opportunities for him so if you were playing like the Miami Heat style drive and kick offense which I have seen us playing a little bit more lately uh, if somebody who's better at getting into the paint on their own is like the primary guy who's initiating the offense if they kick the ball out to Killian Hayes that'll create a better drive opportunity for Killian going into the paint and that's where he'll get maximum opportunity to kick out to, some, to the open man because that's like one of the things that we we really did get to see from him coming into these in, into the season and in those seven games he was able to find the open man even when it looked like they were like on the opposite side of the court oh yeah he really yeah, did show I, how to I do agree. that yeah i agree and if i could just and then we'll i'm sure we we've, we've answered this question pretty thoroughly so we could probably move on but just as a last little little thing about killian here i i agree tommy about his passing vision and i think that the people who said that he showed no nba skills and that he was a bust over the first seven games are wrong because i thought his passing was was better than good. I thought it was really, 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 really good. Um, bordering on special, like a special level of vision. Like he he would pass with pinpoint accuracy to people on opposite sides of the court that I'm watching on TV and I didn't even know they were open. And so because of that, if you um, kind of relate that to the point guard, shooting guard, ball handling debate, um, I wouldn't mind seeing him play the two for the remainder of the season. But I, I think long-term he projects as a point guard because your passing vision doesn't matter unless you have the ball in your hands. Um, and that, to me, even if we do end up drafting, like, say, a Cade Cunningham, I think Killian's um, his, his skills translate best to being the primary ball handler. And as far as, you know, if he can get the ball and then someone else creates drives for him, he, he's only played seven games. We don't, we don't necessarily know what his ceiling is when it comes to um, being a, a scoring creator, right? And th- that even relates to the step back as well the step back may still very well be a viable uh, tool in his arsenal, right? So we're just going to have to see how he progresses. But long-term, I view him as a point guard, and I, and I attribute that to the passing vision. Yeah, I think you could play him at shooting guard. Uh, certainly, if he if he becomes a, you know, this, if he becomes a, a solid spot of threat, and, and the answer to your, your question, Tommy, is that he shot uh, about 33.3%, 33.3%, repeating, whatever, on... Most likely, I would imagine, anyway. <laughs> on, uh, whatever the case. Uh, yeah, on catch and shoots, he was he was okay. 
I mean, not thirty-three point three percent is not a is not really a good mark, but it's not I imagine it's better than his pull-ups, though. <laughs> yeah. His pull-ups are terrible. Uh, he yeah. shot twelve and a half percent on pull-ups. Twelve and a half. Wow. Not yeah. Even uh, on on wide open threes, he only had one attempt per game, so really only about uh, I think a total of eight attempts per season, one one point one attempts per game. Whatever. I don't know why I'm getting in the minutia, you know, the minutia of, of this, but he shot 50% on those on, on very low volume. His jump shot doesn't look bad. Even even when he shoots pull-ups, his, and fadeaways rather, his his jump shot doesn't look bad. So, yeah, he is he is young. And, uh, but uh, yeah, back, back to what I was saying though. Yeah, he could play some minutes at shooting guard simply because he can defend at the position. If you can shoot spot up threes and just function as a secondary ball handler, great. I just think that you're wasting a lot of, a lot of what he can conceivably provide if he is not the primary, you know, the offensive lead, but whatever the situation may be, the more ball handlers you can have on the floor, the better really, uh, provided they can play off the ball. Okay. So, uh, moving on once more. Uh, we were asked which players do would you consider important parts of the future. I, I think the question, the answer to that question is is you know, it's pretty self evident. Is is Wayne Ellington, Rodney Magruder, and Julia Okafor? Um, <laughs> next question. No, just kidding. Uh, uh, I, I again, really though, I, I think I think the questions you you know the, the players I would say certainly are, are most important on the this roster right now. Uh, Grant, uh, Sadiq Bay, and Killian Hayes. Uh, Isaiah Stewart, I think, will be on the roster for a long time. I really like him. I just don't think he. I think he has he has the least potential out of all those guys. Uh, I don't know what we'd see from Saban Lee, but and who knows? Maybe maybe Seku can can actually come out and surprise people. But speaking purely on what we know right now, yeah, I'd say Grant, and Bay, and Hayes. Yeah, well, yeah, well, Grant is a proven. Um didn't make the all-star team, but was certainly playing at uh, close to an all-star level. So by default, right, he, he automatically has the most value on the team and he's not an old player by any means. He just turned 27. And so, yeah, definitely valuable. And I think he's in it for the long haul. And then um, Sadiq Bey has performed uh, incredibly relative to how we thought he was going to perform this year. But I think the organization probably views Killian as the, the kind of crown jewel of the off season, like the guy who, potentially has the highest ceiling and and though he hasn't shown it thus far um it's going to be interesting to see how his game kind of develops because he's without a doubt one of the most important uh, future core pieces we have and then um i'm going to disagree just a bit mike i think that i I would put isaiah stewart in with those uh with those three to make it a four um i think that his ceiling is is unknown and we've talked about it several times it's just he he has such an odd combination of skills, right? Where he's big, thick. He's a he's a polished. I, I don't know if I want to say polished, but he's a good post player already at the age of nineteen. But uh, his vertical explosiveness is just not there, right? But then again, he shows uh, he's flashed nice handles. He's flashed nice passing. He's a terrific offensive rebounder, and now he's starting to space the floor a little bit. And I think as the season goes on, he's going to be shooting more and more and more whether that's uh, from a catch-and-shoot three or whether that's from a pick-and-pop mid-range, right? So I think that his ceiling is, is is definitely an unknown, and every time I think I pinpoint it, he does something else, and then that throws my prediction out of whack. So I think it's safe to lump him into uh, a core future piece of this team that's important, and then second. Oh, I'd agree. Yeah, yeah, I was just going, uh, I was just going for the, you know, the top three, really. Oh, yeah. So, oh, the top three, uh, I would put... Well, if it is a top four, I would put Stewart at four. Yeah, I would put him at four, too. I would put him at four. But I think I think the distinction is important if we're talking about actual actual core pieces. I think it's four rather than three. Um, you know, the order with which you want to rank them, obviously, is up to do, up for debate. But uh, just for the sake of argument, we'll say it's four. And then, yeah, those are the most important. Seku, uh, we literally just said this last episode, I believe, where it's like, yeah, he went from the only promising young player on the team to, you know, he's just more of a lottery ticket now, and that's something the organization has in their back pocket, and we'll see how he develops. And then Saban Lee, um, I think I'm a bit higher on him uh, than you, Mike, but I do think his ceiling probably caps out at at a backup point guard. But hey, I mean, if you can draft one in the second round and then he's with you for the long term, and that's not a position that you need to fill uh, with an over overpaying free agency – that's a win as well. So we'll see how these things shake out. But 
I think there's a pretty defined core four pieces. And you touched on this earlier, Mike, and I completely agree. The finishing touch, like the crown jewel, is more than likely not on the roster right now. Um, and hopefully we can acquire one in the draft coming up. Yeah, yeah I just I, I agree that Stewart's ceiling remains nebulous. I, I think it'd just be about him providing enough offensive value that he can stay on the court for 30 minutes a game. Sure, yeah. That's 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 the real question. And and again, I, I think it's just worth repeating that uh, his, his issues with the verticality take away some options. So yeah. he's got to be able to compensate for that. Yeah, I've gotten a lot. I've gotten in some trouble for saying that I think Stewart is a backup. And when I say that, I think about it like this. Like when you talk about the important parts of the future, obviously that's gearing towards a championship team. Anything less, it's like, why do you want to be anything less? You should be aiming for that. So I envision Saban as a backup point guard. Uh, I think he's, he's shown enough in the way of penetration that he's interesting there. I like his two-man game with Isaiah Stewart. Um, and then with Stewart, I don't see exactly, it's exactly what you just said. I don't see the verticality and that takes away options. Uh, you can't, he's not an above the rim player and that's going to make things harder for your point guard, anybody throwing lobs. He's not going to be that guy who can go up and get it. Uh, somebody else had suggested, well, maybe if you get a four who can be that guy and Isaiah Stewart can just be a floor spacer. Yeah, that that's an option, but I just, I don't see Stewart as a championship tier center right now, unless you have like a really good team around him. And even then that would just be something that you have to kind of work around with him. And ideally your center is a guy who kind of, you plug him in and he just makes the rest of your team better by being the like half of a really good pick and roll duo or, or just a guy who can catch lobs. He doesn't have to be the guy who's initiating a ton. So that's when, when I say I think Stewart is a backup center, that's what I mean. I think he's most useful as a backup center where he can eat up more usage and play that post game and take those slower threes. I think they're slower. And who knows? Like if he adds more, maybe that changes. But right now at 19, I'm aware of that, uh, I see him as a backup and I see Saban as his running mate. And then as far as the starting lineup goes, I see Sadiq Bey as like your fourth option or Maybe third. I mean, he's dropping 20-pointers pretty consistently now. Third third option you really have to be able to create for yourself to some degree. Yeah, and he's yeah. showing a little bit of that too. I mean, he's he's showing some of those things that he showed at Villanova where he's getting into the paint and uh, posting up a little bit. And I, I know that's not the prettiest or the fastest offense, but it's something. So third or fourth option, I think Jeremy Grant is a legitimate second option. Uh, if he's your first, if you bank on him being your first, I think you'll be disappointed. But those four, I think they have pretty defined roles, or I can really picture them uh, in those roles on a starting or on a championship team. And then Killian and Seku are kind of your wild cards. I don't know what you're supposed to expect from them. If you want Killian to be a combo guard, I think things get a lot easier. But I don't know how good he's going to be yet. So those are probably the most, the five most important guys uh, to me because I can see them contributing on a championship team. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, if I were to, if I'm ranking Killian's importance, it's just as it's it's importance as far as how important his success is to to the future of the team. I'll, I'll again just say I'll disagree with, about Jeremy Grant. I, I think if he's going to be unless he keeps improving, if he's going to be the second option on your team, uh, on a championship team, then your number one option is going to have to, you're either going to have to have the sort of very impressively spread out egalitarian offense that the going to work Pistons had, which is difficult to pull off these days, but can't be done. Or your number one score is going to need to be in, in this, a transcendent score. If, if Jeremy Grant is going to be your, your viable is going to be your real number two guy in a championship team. Your number one score is going to have to be amazing. So, That's but fair. you know, if, I know Grant has regressed a little bit lately, but I still think like if you, if you gave him some more options or some more weapons around him, uh, that would open up his game a little bit more and that would make him look a lot better. Sure. I mean, if, but, but I think that's even then you'd have to have a strong support, very strong supporting cast to make that work. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that the old champion, you know, that the typical championship template is the one that always has to, that you always have to have. But if you just look at your requirements to have, you know, for, to, to really have a championship team in, in, really the past going back to the going to work pistons really you've and again i mentioned the raptors 
you know, with, with Kyle Lowry as your number two scorer, sure. I mean, he's an all-star. I'm not taking anything away from Kyle Lowry. Not a superstar scorer. But the Raptors got lucky, real lucky. And that, that series could have been over in, you know, you know, five games if, if, you, had, uh, if you had Thompson and Durant. So I, I think I'm getting that right. Whatever the case, I, I think we can all agree they would not have won <laughs> against yeah. the Golden State team with Thompson and Durant. Oh, for sure not. No. Yeah. But, I mean, you look at the Lakers, for example, Anthony Davis. And, again, I'm not saying you have to have this. But, yeah, Anthony Davis and, and LeBron James. The Warriors, of course, were the Warriors. They do not really even need any uh, any explanation. Uh, Kyrie Irving and and LeBron James for the Cavs and Kevin Love. That's, that's helpful, too. I, I, I think that's, that Grant would be most suited to that sort of Kevin Love role where you can still do a lot of damage, but you're behind two really elite offensive creators. But I know, and I know that you can, you can look back further at that. The Warriors had Ted Curry and Thompson and Thompson wasn't really that elite guy, but I don't know. Steph, Steph Curry just kind of allows you to really transcend a lot. <laughs> he's, he's just a completely meta bending player in any events. So uh, moving on to the final question we have, which is, uh, is not, Really, all that uplifting, <laughs> but fortunately, I don't think this is something we have to be afraid of. Uh, so, the question: In any scenario, do you think the Pistons had any fear of being? I would imagine have this, this question: Have any fear of being relocated? Twenty sixteen, it was leaked the Pistons the least profitable team in the league, and because of the team's lack of success in the twenty tens, uh, fan support has dwindled. Uh, do you believe we have any? We do have uh, any any chance of being relocated? And, uh, yeah, my, my answer is no, no, I don't no. think there's any fear of that. Uh, I, I, I haven't seen the, uh, the, uh, the statistics on, on which teams are most or least profitable. I do know it's very difficult to not be a profitable, well, of course, coronavirus aside under normal circumstances, it's very difficult, or I should say it is extremely easy to be profitable as an NBA team. Uh, just the. The sources of income are myriad, and even when it comes down to merchandising, TV rights, and so on and so forth. There's also that Tom Gore seems to be pretty, you know, say what you will, he seems to be pretty dedicated to Detroit. And uh, and uh, even though Detroit is <laughs> not a very nice city, put it that way, uh, a lot of people who a lot of you for listening to this podcast, probably Pistons fans, and most of you live in Michigan. You know that the surrounding areas are actually quite nice. I mean, it's it's actually a pretty, a pretty wealthy suburban area. So, no, I I just from from all of those factors and, and just Detroit being a, a decent sports city, I, I don't see them. I don't see the Pistons ever being relocated. You no, don't. I've often actually seen the teams. graphic. Yeah, you yeah, don't no, often I've seen the see graphic. teams. Yeah. Like the last time a Go team ahead. was relocated, uh, wasn't that Oklahoma City? From Seattle, yeah, I that was like so. that was close to twenty years ago. It just it doesn't happen often. You got to have a real good reason to relocate a team. Uh, the last, uh, aside from the NFL, which seems to just relocate teams, you'd know more about this than I, Dante, but it seems to relocate teams, you know, quite a bit more often, particularly the the California teams. Yeah, uh, yeah. Aside, aside from the NFL, I, I I think the last relocation between the uh, Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NHL was in 2012 when the Atlanta Thrashers, who had no business being a team in the first place because right. there's a horrible market for them. Uh, that That's, well, I'll put it this way. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe it could have been a good market if the team wasn't so incompetent. But they were at a disadvantage to, to begin with as a hockey team in Atlanta, mm-hmm. which is just not a traditional hockey market of any kind. And you can say that there are other non-traditional hockey markets, but you look at the Phoenix Coyotes, for example. They've been around for a while and they've constantly struggled. There are markets that work, but yeah, um, Detroit's a market yeah. that works, though. I mean, it you, is. Yeah, you can say what you will about, um, and many people have this, that, the city, whatever the case may be. The fact of the matter is that Detroit is a sports town. Um, it'll always be a sports town. Every single team that you have is historic, right? You've got the Lions, even though they haven't succeeded, they're still a historic team. Uh, the Pistons, uh, the Wings, and the Tigers. Um, none of those teams are going to be relocated. Um, if there was even the slightest chance of that occurring, then I can guarantee you that there wouldn't have been massive, uh, large scale construction downtown to ensure that all of these stadiums are within walking distance of each other. Like this is very clear. This is very clearly, um, 
a thought out plan to start to revitalize the downtown area. And the sports teams are the key to doing that. Um, so there's absolutely no chance of the Pistons being relocated. I wish I could go less than 0% because that's what it is. And we've heard the same thing with the Lions too. Uh, people have said, oh, you know, the Lions have been so bad for so long that uh, Jeff Bezos is going to buy the team and move them to California. It's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> like there's no there's no basis for any of these claims, right? So whoever asked that question, I wouldn't worry about it. it it's not even worth fretting over because it's not going to happen. Yeah, well, I've seen the graphic that I think this question is referring to because, yeah, this this info did leak in 2016. And the Pistons, they did lose money. A lot of teams lost money, but the league has uh, – Revenue sharing, so everybody still gets money, but the Pistons didn't make much. When you look at the games, there's not that many people there. Living in southeast Michigan, you see Pistons gear far less than you see pretty much all the other three, uh, other four major sports, other three, whatever. And I think that's probably just stems from the fact that we've been really boring for the last 12 years, but I'm encouraged by the fact that I think we'll be a lot better after this. I really do think this team finally has direction. I think once you give the fans something to cheer about, something interesting, they'll come back. I'm not really Absolutely. worried about the team moving. Absolutely, they'll come back. And that, that goes for all sports, not just the Pistons, right? And so yeah. it's it's not a question it's not a question that can be answered in a vacuum because all these sports teams relate to each other. Um, and all four of them are going through a rebuild right now. And before long, even if not all of these rebuilds work, some of them will. At least one of them probably will. And one team's success is good for all the teams in the area because it just increases the interest in sports, right? And like I said, can't be overstated what they've done downtown with the location uh, locations of the arenas. So it's just not on the table. I, I can guarantee it's not on the table. Oh, I would just say, I'll just repeat it. It's very difficult to get an, an NHL, an NBA, or a Major League Baseball team relocated. It just doesn't. It just very, very, very rarely happens, and there's got to be a very good reason for it. Like I said, the Atlanta, the Thrashers were a terrible team, uh, just really struggling in, in every respect and in a difficult market. And that that's what got them moved. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I, I think, yeah, it's, it's just it's it just doesn't happen unless there's a good reason. And I, I, and I don't think Tom Gorris is going to be the kind of guy who is just going to say, oh, OK, well, I'm just going to feel like it because he seems pretty dedicated to Detroit. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. For sure. And with that, we are going to move on to a draft pro profile of prospective top five pick Jalen Green. Uh, thank you to everybody who submitted questions. And we are always happy to receive uh, feedback, suggestions, uh, ideas for things we can uh, discuss on future episodes. So, uh, yeah, to all of you, please, uh, if you ever have any of the above, uh, let us know. All right, Jalen Green. Yeah, so really excited about this one. Jalen Green is a six foot six wing out of the G League Ignite team, and he's been one of the most exciting prospects, certainly in this draft and uh, probably in the past few drafts. He comps everywhere from Zach Levine to J Derek Jones Jr., and then I've even seen Kobe comps. And I know that like you are, you're immediately going to think, well, that's crazy. You watch him, and I know it's like the high end, obviously, but it's not crazy. Uh, if you watch overtime, you've seen his high school dunks. Jalen has a lethal first step, elevates like a rocket, and he continued to show out in the G League bubble. And while I don't think that was the best showcase of his talent, I think he benefited greatly from his time with the Ignite team. Uh, Jalen is one of three legitimate first option tier players that I see in the top five of this draft. And if the Pistons miss out on Cade, I think Green can go anywhere from two to five. Uh, although personally, I see him as number two, and I would be very surprised if that changed before the draft. Uh, but never say never anyway. But if the Pistons, if he's there when the Pistons pick, I really hope we take him. Uh, he has all the tools to be a perennial all-star, and I'm personally very high on him. Coming into the season, the G League season, that is, there were questions about his defense and his three ball, and I think those were the biggest things. Uh, so starting with his three-point shooting, he had his ups and downs, but he finished the G League season shooting 37% on threes, 82% from the free throw line, and that's really encouraging uh, for projecting continued shooting prowess and that's really important when you look at the other part of his game which is his ability to attack the basket uh, he can absorb contact avoid it finishes with finesse and it's just he can he just puts on a clinic every time he goes to the basket like he he does get followed a lot and I think uh, playing on the ignite team that didn't have maybe the best spacing options and they didn't play the fastest 
maybe that was that made it harder for him, but he's just so much fun to watch. Uh, his balance and hang time on some of these like at the basket shots it's just mesmerizing to watch and one of the surprises for me personally though uh was the variety of dribble moves he showed i thought he was gonna i mean he showed handles but that was more attacking the basket but the stuff that he showed on the perimeter even it, it was just fantastic he was showing step backs uh crossovers just a wide variety of really really good and encouraging things he had games where he shot from distance really poorly and games where he shot really well, but the degree of difficulty and the limited touches he got in the beginning, I'm bullish on his ability as a shooter. And again, I don't even think this was the best team for his draft stock. The Ignite team played really slow basketball and they didn't, it's not the best for him when he's like this guy who's just, he's supposed to get out in transition. He's supposed to get his dunks before the defense sets. That didn't really get to happen much for him here. Uh, he had to kind of adjust to that. Uh, I don't. I, the Ignite team. I don't think they got him the electrifying dunks that kind of made him famous. But on a fast-paced college team, I think he would probably be getting a lot more hype, uh, just because one, that's probably better for like becoming a, a household name. But I think that's just a better-looking offense uh, that would play to his strengths more. So, but what this, what playing on the Ignite team did do for him was it taught him to be a half-court player. And that's something that you obviously, obviously you really need that uh, when you're going to the NBA. You can't just rely on transition. And while that is a very efficient offense, like especially in the playoffs, uh, they're going to try and stop you. Like the pace slows down. So it's really good for Jalen Green's development that he got to play in the Ignite team. And I think he's going to be a great value pick. He's one of those kids with like S-tier athleticism. And I think that Jalen Green could be like that first option, the 1A scorer that the Pistons are looking for. So if he's there, if the Pistons pick from 2 to 5, I'm not personally very sure why he's fallen all the way to 5 in some mock drafts. I'm, I just don't understand why, because I think he has a very complete game for a shooting guard. And I think he could be exactly the guy that the Pistons are looking for. What would be your primary reservations, if any? I guess it would be the defense. Uh in high school, for sure, he he didn't play much of that and like the uh, World Cup stuff. And then, but one of the things that I did see was, uh, I, I really like these uh, film analysis videos that Mike Schmitz does with the individual prospect. And he went down to Walnut Creek where the Ignite team trains, and he talked to Jalen Green for I don't know why, but the minutes about twenty minutes long. And when they got to his defense, they showed him clips of him playing defense from just two months ago. Jalen was pretty quiet the whole time, but when they showed him this clip of him defensively, he like perked up. He's like, wow, I can't believe I used to play defense like that. He's made strides there, at least in his mind. So I'm really encouraged by that, but I think that was like his biggest thing. And then, I mean, even though he shot 37% in the G League, he does need to continue to shoot well, uh, take the right shots. But I think the Pistons could be a fantastic fit for him. This team runs really well. And he will get his, his opportunities to attack the basket on this team, especially when they start to add more spacing. Uh, what about his mentality? What do we know about that? Uh, I've read that he's a very hard worker. He opted to go with the G League route, which is definitely less fame. Uh, they do pay you more, but I, I think... They, they pay you to I, pay I don't have any concerns zero. there. <laughs> What's that? They pay you more than zero. That's nice. They pay you more than zero. Definitely more than zero. And uh, I, I guess... That would be – I appreciate that he went with this route because I think it does show that he was more committed to learning and perfecting his craft than uh, being the big man on campus. So I don't really have any issues with him there either. I think he'd be a fantastic get for the Pistons. What about in terms of leadership? Or do we not Leadership, know I'm not yet? sure. Like with, with the Yeah, with the Ignite team, I guess that would be one of the – the drawbacks from going to this, the leaders on that team are definitely going to be like the veterans that they have on that team. These guys who are like career NBA players, they're definitely a lot older. Uh, he talked a lot about how he appreciated the mentorship of those guys, but I didn't see him uh, as much. You don't really expect the kid who's like 18, 19 to be the leader on a team with a bunch of 30 year olds and guys like Amir Johnson, Jared Jack. Uh, so I don't know about that, but even if that's not his thing, I, I guess I wouldn't expect it to be just based on how quiet he is, his demeanor. But I don't know if you need that from him. 
I definitely expect him to be a lead by example guy. He's going to be an energy guy, and I think that he would fit the team's identity very well that way. Uh, given that he, I mean, he uh, this what I believe actually fourth on his team in assists per game. I mean, do you think what kind of caliber do you think he? Uh, excuse me, in terms of uh, his ability to create for others, rather. I mean, uh, where does he... Yeah, in the start of the season, he didn't get the ball in his hands nearly as much. And by the end of it, I mean, if you go back and you watch his last game with the Ignite where they lost in the playoffs to uh, the Toronto team, and they were playing excellent, excellent ball for a G League team especially. But he was handling the ball a bit more, and that was something that I saw... People say, wow, I wish they would have given the ball to Jalen Green a lot more. I don't see him as like a primary ball handler, uh, maybe secondary at best, I guess, to start. But he showed some chops there, too. Like, he, he did make the right pass a few times. So uh, that's encouraging as well. All right. Fantastic. So that'll be it for today's episode. As always, thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time.